Welcome to the Black Theatre History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the plays, and the rich stories of the American theater's African-American history makers. I'm KB Sane. Today, we have the joy of talking with Blair Underwood, who is currently starring as Captain Richard Davenport in Charles Fuller's A Soldier's Play on Broadway. Blair is truly a hyphenated artist, an actor, obviously, but also a director and a producer. He was last seen on the Broadway stage as Stanley in A Streetcar Named Desire, for which he received a nomination for the Drama League's Distinguished Performance Award. His other theater experience includes Trip to Bountiful, where he played against the incomparable Cicely Tyson. He originated the role of Blue in Dominique Moroso's Paradise Blue, and he's recently performed in Othello and Measure for Measure. His selected film and TV credits include Deep Impact, Rules of Engagement, Medea's Family Reunion, Full Frontal, When They See Us, Dear White People, Juanita, Quantico, Dirty Sexy Money, and of course, L.A. Law. In addition to the self-made inspired by Madam C.J. Walker on Netflix. Blair's halfway to EGOT status with both an Emmy Award and a Grammy Award. He's twice been nominated for Golden Globes and he's been honored with seven NAACP Image Awards. Blair's also just a really great human being. He made time for our conversation before his call time for a Thursday performance of a soldier's play and we tucked away in the balcony of the Walter Kerr Theater to chat. Thank you for coming in early and meeting with us. No, of course, my pleasure. You are fairly free about talking about your first teachers and the like, but I'm wondering if you can just recount for us the, the names of the, the teachers and the mentors and the folks that have influenced you. Oh, sure. My first teacher uh, was Mrs. Warren when I was in junior high school in Warren, Michigan. I can give her credit for the first time I took acting classes and drama classes was with her. Okay. In junior high school, then I moved to Petersburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. in high school, and my mentor was Marie Manigo. My heart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She was my English teacher, and I, I was a student government president my senior of year. Course. She, of course. <laughs> I don't know about that. But she was my mentor and, and helped me through that whole process of how to campaign, and then once I won, how to like do things um, you know, that were beneficial to the students and the mm-hmm. student body and all that kind of stuff. So, But also, she had her own company, the Playmaker Fellows. Was this on Sycamore Street? At on the Sycamore time? Street, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was actually before they, she moved to Sycamore Street, um, but she had her own professional company, mm-hmm. and I started doing plays with her. I did a Raised in the Sun. I played Asa Guy and a Raised in the Sun with her, and we did musical reviews. And um, it was professional in that we got to do work outside the theater. Mm-hmm. We didn't get paid for that. So, <laughs> so my first paying gig was at Swift Creek Mill Playhouse yes. in Colonial Heights, mm-hmm. Virginia. And uh, I got paid $75 a week. I was doing Fittings Rainbow. I was in the chorus. I was one of the gospeliers. And, but it, was, it meant so much to me because I was getting paid 75 bucks a week to do what I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. I, couldn't, I couldn't fathom then so much. And even to this day, it amazes me that they pay, pay us to play make-believe as actors <laughs> and storytellers. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a lucky gig. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's beautiful work if you can get it. And so from high school, you went to Carnegie Mellon. Mm-hmm. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And you didn't finish, am I correct? And you ended up coming to the city first. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, that's right. I left in the middle of my third year. Okay. So my dad's a, um, an army, retired army colonel. So he made middle class money in Virginia, but it was still steep for my older brother, Frank, to be in college. And I was in college at the same time. So he made too much money for financial aid. We right. weren't eligible for that. But it was just very hard to keep us both in college. So I was in the middle of my third year. And Money was tight, and they would not give, Carnegie Mellon would not give me financial aid. So I said, you know, I talked to my folks. They said, you know, maybe this is a sign. Maybe it's your time to go to New York. Take what you've learned in the last two and a half years um, and sit down. And I did with Marva Hicks. I was talking about telling the story last night. 
Marva, who's from Petersburg, mm-hmm. Virginia, she came over to my house. We sat at my kitchen table. She showed me how to put together a resume, what a resume was, talked me through what I needed to do to get an 8 by 10 I didn't know what an 8 by 10 <laughs> photo was, and just talked me through the whole process. And uh, so she is, in many ways, is another one of my mentors um, that I, I attribute so much of, uh, or just I'm grateful for, mm-hmm. that she was there and helped walk me through the process. And I moved to New York and... Long story short, as it turned out, I, I, I ended up staying with a friend of mine's mother, Elsie Rudder, who I call one of my angels to this day because she let me stay in her, her apartment in Brooklyn. I just, I just need a room. Mm-hmm. I just need some place where I can just lay my head so I can go to auditions and knock on doors and get an agent, this, that, and the other. And um, I'll stay with Pat Prescott, who's a well-known radio personality in New York for years. Now she's out in Los Angeles. Um, family friend. She let me stay on her couch that very first night so I could just, uh, you know, start having meetings and I, I my mother and I drove to New York and I found a place to stay and I did a lot of um, interviews with uh, restaurants I was going to wait tables whatever mm-hmm. it took just I had to make some money um, so out of that first trip here with my mother which was like the first week in uh, uh, um, January 85 I got a lead on a place to stay with Elsie Rudder I didn't have a job yet but I had a lead on an agent so another one of my, I just call them angels and mentors, was Billy Wilson, who was my teacher, mm-hmm. my dance teacher at Carnegie Mellon. And he's a Tony-nominated choreographer. He did Bubba and Brown Sugar on Broadway, and he was one of our teachers at the time. And he said, I'll introduce you to my agent when you graduate. So I was like a year and a half early. I said, I'm not graduating, <laughs> but I, can I take you up on that? And he did. Long story short, he introduced me to his agent, writers and artists, who was Perry Kipperman, um, who became my very first agent. She sent me on to just like a go-see that day. Um, or she put some calls in. Uh, for the Cosby show and I drove back to Petersburg and two nights later I get a call from her and said Cosby would like to meet you tomorrow can you come and I was already going to move everything up to New York making that move to New York it was just accelerated (laughs) like a a couple weeks earlier so we did we got in the car and and drove here my mom and I it was my dad and I my mom mom and I and um, I met Mr. Cosby that next day and the very next day they would film on Thursdays I got the job on that Wednesday and the very next day I was on the Cosby set I'm not sure I ever show. realized it was that fast. No, it was the next day. Mm-hmm. It was my next day. I had moved in on this uh, this first week of January, and they were taping on Thursday. And then Friday, I'm like, okay, what do I do? I don't have an agent. But because that happened so fast, right. Perry Kipperman signed me. She said, oh, maybe we, <laughs> maybe we should take some notice. Cause it, but because it, 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 it happened fast. Do you have any memory of what that experience was? I mean, to, to get your first gig the day before it happened. Yeah, it was just... I think about the young people who are listening to this podcast and what it must sound like. I'm appreciating hearing you talk about, like, I got a bunch of friends who would let me crash for a minute to like, right, right. figure out what I'm doing. But that idea of, you know, getting the gig for the next day is fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I don't know if you can plan for that. And I don't know. <laughs> it was just, um, it, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't know what my memory of it was. I was completely blown away. And and um, just said, I, I got to ride this and not let it go to waste. Because literally, they taped on Thursday. So Friday morning, and it was 1985. It was the number one show on television. Mm-hmm. It was their very first season. And I was like, okay, now what do I do? Now I got to get a I, I still have to get a job. Right. It didn't pay that much. Um, I was fortunate enough that it got me my agent. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then eventually, I started. I, I did three months on One Life to Live, and I got my first job, my first movie, which was Crush Groove, mm-hmm. a couple months later, which came again through Perry Kipperman and and, um, okay. and Peter Peter Golden, who was um, he was the casting director at the Cosby Show, and he mentioned me to the casting director mm-hmm. for Crush Groove, 
You know what's ironic? I have not told this story yet. Go. When I oh wow, that's just it just I just remember that. When I when I uh I done no, I hadn't done Crush I had auditioned for Crush Groove. Okay. And there was another actor they were they were uh, thinking about heavily. I think he almost had the gig. Then I came in and auditioned, and Doug McHenry and George Jackson produced that movie. Uh, Michael Schultz directed that movie. Mm -hmm. And Doug McHenry told me then, <laughs> this is so funny, this is 1985. And he said, we don't know if this Blair kid is going to be sexy enough, if the women will like him. <laughs> I mean, we really don't. He said, so we did an unofficial uh, survey. We went around the office and asked the girls. This is what he said to me. How ironic is this? I'm gonna use this word in front of you, but you'll 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 appreciate it. But he said, "We don't know. This Blair looks like one of those soldier story niggas. We don't know if the girl's gonna like him. If he's oh sexy my goodness. enough. How ironic is that? I told my and wife here that you are. told me like a like a month ago that I hadn't thought of that in years. <laughs> and um, so they did the little unofficial resume, and I guess the, the yeah, you was positive enough. That front. It, was, it was it was all right. So I got the, I got the gig. But that was my first movie, Crush Group. But that was ironic that he said that at the time, because the movie came out in '83 and this was '85. He said it looks like one of those." Soldier guys, That's but he said a soldier story. <laughs> he knew even then. <laughs> so you stayed in film. You stayed doing screen work for a while. What was the, what was the piece that brought you back to the stage? The first thing was, um, well, yeah, no, you're right because I, I went to Carnegie Mellon and, and studied theater, music mm -hmm. theater, actually. Um, my first love has always been the stage. That's where I started. That's mm -hmm. where I always come back to every chance I get. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful that film and television took off because yeah. you could make a living. It's hard to make a living in the theater. <laughs> you know, you know this. Um, but the very first thing I think was uh, I did the New York City Encores okay. with Anika Nani Rose. We did Pearly. Mm. It's just it's a two week gig. No, I'm sorry. Before that, no, this was '93. I did um, Shakespeare in the Park. Did Measure for Measure with Kevin God, Klein. It was that. Kevin Klein. Lisa Gay Hamilton, who was in Crush Crew, Ruben Santiago Hudson, of course, uh, uh, Andre Brower, mm -hmm. um, and that was oh yeah, it was just a great cast. That was 1993. Was that, that was the first time you worked with Ruben? Yeah, okay. that's how we met. Yeah, and that brought that that's the first theater piece I did that brought me back. And then um, I did Pearly a couple years later, and then Game of Love and Chance out in L.A. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a one man show. But I also wanted to celebrate that in I guess more more recent years you've been really doing a lot of theater with some heightened text mm. um looking mm. at tennessee williams looking at shakespeare again returning mm -hmm. to that you know i think the dominique Morisseau fits in a heightened text yes. charles fuller yeah um what are if you're gonna do it do the best right yeah. <laughs> well, what are the things that because you're at a place where you can choose your work mm -hmm. to some degree <laughs> but I mean, you know, you're you're in a place where you can be a little more discerning. I think I think first of all, for actors, I think you you're always in a place to choose your work. That's how I've well gotten said. to this point. You always have the option to say no. Um, thank you for saying yeah. that. Yeah. What what are the what are the things that excite you most about juicy text, about language? And oh, I know it's a passion yeah, of yours. Yeah, it's oh, it's 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 multi layered. It's part of it is the the, the personal journey mm -hmm. that's one lane the second lane is expressing it to a live audience mm -hmm. um where davenport goes at the end of our production i've never seen another production but i know just from what i've seen and i've heard well the text i read mm -hmm. it the trap of playing davenport is you can just be the lawyer yeah. you can just be the one asking the questions but 
because as you know, I come from a military family and I saw my father, the human being who put on this uniform and became this officer, but I saw the man. There are fears and loves and passions and thoughts. And if, if you're in any way empathetic, you're gonna feel what's happening mm -hmm. during this journey. I'm talking about Davenport now. And it impacts you in a certain way if you're open to it. Um, so to be able to go there every night are the reasons I wanted to become an actor. I was telling my wife the other day, the, um, the, the last time I felt that way, I mean, I couldn't, when I did Othello, I could not wait to get on stage for that fifth act. Because you go there, and people sometimes don't understand, you do, of mm -hmm. course, as, as actors, why do you like doing deep stuff? To me, it's cathartic. Yeah. You know, to tap into those emotions we all have and to exercise them and mine them and bring them out um, and then have other people f feel them um, whether they're laughing or they're hurting or they're thinking. Sometimes both at once. Sometimes both at once. So, so anyway, to answer your question, um, when you have a text that is so rich and eloquent, like Dominique Moriso or Tennessee Williams or Shakespeare, um, not only can you tap into those emotional chambers, but you can sing on the wings of eloquence. Ah, that's why I'm telling you, those final speeches with Othello, especially when he's so filled with pain and regret and remorse and guilt um, and love lost and confusion and to be able to speak that poetry. So, you know, I did, a, I did a, as you know, and that's why I love you so much. You brought two busloads to see my Broadway debut <laughs> of Streetcar Named Desire. I will always give you time and respect because I'll never forget that. Um, but when we did Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway, Bob Greenblatt, who ran NBC, who ran, he still runs NBC, came to see it. And I've, I'll always be grateful. He came backstage and said, I'm going to create something for you. And mm -hmm. out of that, we did a production deal for a year. And part of that production deal was I would bring things to them as a producer, and they'd bring things to me, and we decide on doing, doing something, mm -hmm. hopefully. Hopefully. You may not come up with something. Long story short, everything I brought to them, they said no. <laughs> so <laughs> the last month of the deal, like a one-year deal, they they brought me Ironside mm -hmm. and was in their uh, coffers at Universal and NBC. And uh, we ended up, long story short, we ended up doing the show. Um, and I played Ironside. And then after doing it, and you, it's, I mean, you do long hours on TV shows, mm -hmm. uh, film work, camera work. And you invest a lot. And after, after three episodes, only three episodes, they canceled it. Mm -hmm. So I was, after that, I understood. I mean, to me, knowing the business, I knew it was a it was a victory to get the production deal. Right. It was a victory to see it made. To yeah, to identify a project that we're going to do together. It was a victory to do the pilot. Then it's a victory to have the pilot get picked up. Right. Then it's a victory to have that show on television. So I saw from a very practical standpoint, it's like you know they don't owe you anything. You know all those are little victories. Mm -hmm. I could have they could have just paid me off on that year deal and say nothing came of it. But it was there was a product that came out of it. But I say all that to say that yet and still. I was burnt out. When they canceled, I felt like they didn't really give it a, ch a chance. I was burnt out, and I told my agents, I said, you know what? I'm grateful for all, the, all of my opportunities, but I'm gonna take a year off from Hollywood. I don't wanna see a camera for a year. I wanna go back to my first love, which is the stage. And I didn't know what I was gonna do. I didn't know what was gonna happen. This is 2014. Okay, I was thank you. So yeah. I was scrolling, yeah. I was trying to place when that was. It was 2014, and literally, I think it was March, I got an invitation to go to Israel, which I've always wanted to do, and I'm a Christian. Um, 
And I said, and then that same week, Barry Edelstein, do you know Barry Edelstein? Mm -mm. Who's phenomenal. He's the artistic director now. He's from New York, but now at, at the, um, at the uh, Old Globe in okay. San Diego. Okay. But he is a Shakespeare aficionado. He has literally written the book. He's written two books on Shakespeare. Okay. Um, so he was directing Othello. And because it was him, and he called and, and offered the role, I was like, ah, that terrifies me. That intimidates me to no end. Which means you should do it. Which is exactly right. And I heard myself, but I, but I said, listen, literally, I'm going to Israel, the promised land, <laughs> the holy land, <laughs> next week. Let me go pray on this, for real. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a week, I'd give you an answer. So I did, and I kept hearing myself speak to my kids, similar to what you just said, run to the things that scare you. You'll That's where you grow. upset about it. Exactly. You'll so long story be. short, I, I did, and that year became Othello, which I, is one of the highlights of my career. Othello, and then uh, Trip to Bountiful with Cicely Tyson and Vanessa right. Williams. I mm -hmm. took that on tour and did the movie. No, I didn't know. I did the movie later because I just did theater that year. And um, we did it in Boston, Los Angeles. And then at the end, we yeah, we were closing Boston, the end of November, and I was ready. Mm -hmm. But I had to go back to my roots, which is the stage, and remind myself why I love this so much. And it's because of the craft. It's all the things we talked about, delving into whether it's a story arc or a character arc, the depth of the character, the heights of the character, real life, the humanity of these people and these whatever worlds we're living in and creating. And um, and I'll say this, by the grace of God, um, uh, camera work came right by the, the end of Dece December that year. Mm -hmm. And that's why I went right into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And you're ready. I was ready. I was ready. I was, just, I, was, I, was I was just completely burnt out and... I wasn't really disillusioned because I knew what the business was. Like I said, they didn't owe me anything, but I just wanted to just recharge. Yeah. What is your process with, for for theater? What happens when you get your script? When mm. you know it's yours? Yeah, I just try to just familiarize myself as much as possible with that character or project. Okay. Um, and sometimes just watching old movies. I know some actors don't like to do that, but I want to see because I want to see everybody who comes in this Theater, whether it's Streetcar, because it's a very mm -hmm. famous piece, or or, uh, or even this piece, Soldiers Played. People have points of reference. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know what that is. Um, you know, I'm not going to copy it. I think that sometimes actors feel, and I see that, why you might be influenced by it somehow. But I want to see what people are bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. um, so you I know, struggle with it. I, yeah, yeah, I don't, me as too. As a director, I don't want to be influenced. Yeah. But I also do want to know the cultural conversation around this work. Like, what are, what is the audience coming in with? Exactly. It's a, it's a fine line. I often use that example of uh, Streetcar and Stella. Stella, a famous scene. I said, what are you going to do? Because Marlon Brando yelled Stella, you're going to whisper it just to be different? <laughs> you know, you gotta, you got to still find your truth in it. You know what I mean? You can't just, because that's a trap. Sometimes you just do the opposite because it's different from mm -hmm. what was done. Anyway, so part of it is just familiarize myself so, as much as I can with that product, project or character. And then just really, it's all about finding the humanity, finding the, the, the loves and likes and dislikes and passion and, and hopes and dreams of that individual, mm -hmm. that human being. So I want to relate that. I was trying to be careful not to make this conversation just about soldiers play, but in talking about finding the humanity of a character mm. and finding the root of that character, I'm, I'm curious about... Um, how you, we talked the other night in the dressing room mm. about um, how you bring the history of race to a role and how you bring a colonized influence to a character. Mm. Um, for someone like Davenport, I, I know that you came to the development of that character with the full understanding of what it meant to be him in this time period, in mm. this role, given this responsibility. But do you, do you ever find yourself 
thinking about the character in terms of the race of the character being significant to the storytelling. I, obviously, Othello, that's part of it. I, I'm, this isn't a question that I had prepared or that I would normally ask, but I'm curious because of the conversation we had yesterday, if, if, there, if you find that the racial implications and the cultural implications around the story are something that you that you use and that you dig into. That I dig into. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You mean with Davenport or in general? Well, Davenport is such a strong example. So yeah. I think we'll lead with that and you may find that that takes you to other examples. Or... Yeah, I think it's unavoidable. I mean, this story is about race. Mm-hmm. This story is about black men during World War II and, you know, their their challenges and Davenport's challenge and and exploring this this murder mystery and this investigation so race is in the forefront of of everything that's what he's combating you know people's perspective of him yes you know captain taylor's perspective Mm -hmm. the the, you know his all of his superiors um this the soldier's perspective of him you know most of them and many of them love the fact that they have a captain that looks like them Mm -hmm. but you have some characters like uh kyle henson who's like i don't care if you're an officer or not, right. black or white, I don't trust officers. You know, so it's a beauty of this play. You have all these different, you have 12 different characters, nine black, three white, but every one of them, especially from the black, well, every one of them has their own unique perspective and and, and, and lived experience and history and vantage point on everything. But no, I, I think especially with um, Davenport in this play, um, race is at the forefront um, or the, and or the perception of race. It's, it's just interesting because I've not, because you are sitting in front of me, you're making me think about how similar in some ways um, Davenport and Othello are in terms of the respect that should be given them, but yes. it's not because of the racial perception of that, those around them. And it's a good point. I thought about that. The Venetian general. Until just now. That's right. I mean, with the, the, mil- the military aspect of it too, mm-hmm. especially. That's right. Um, and that that should come with an automatic respect and that it should come with uh, yet both of those characters are acutely aware of what others around them think of them because of their race exactly it had never occurred to me before this yeah that's exactly right (laughs) and you help me tie them together like that (laughs) right um so i'm gonna ask just one more question and then i'm gonna let you like you know prepare to do a show tonight oh yeah that um (laughs) but uh, i'm wondering we talked about the, the loves that you have for the stage. And, and I'm mm. wondering what you, as an artist, see as being the concerns that you have for the state of theater right now, what mm. hopes you have for the future. Like, what do you, what do you see happening right now in theater? Um, and we can, I mean, this is the Black Theater History Podcast, so we can go through that lens. It can be a broader brush. Um, but what are the things that you are most excited about right now and, and the concerns that you still have about the field in general? Well, I think in general, in the broad strokes, my concern always is keeping theaters alive. You know, I, I kind of jokingly said something about you can make a living uh, in Hollywood. You know, it's 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 you know better than anybody, and or as well as anybody. And all of our best playwrights are writing for Netflix. And yeah, I, I that's mean, right, that's like, right. I mean, Dominique Maurice, she was Maurice, Couture, she was age, Showtime. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's it's a very it's a very challenging world, um, but so critically important and vitally important. Um, so in general, just the, the, the world of the theater, I would love to see a way where more theaters can th- not just live, but survive, and not yes. just survive, but thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it, through the lens of 
black theater. Mm -hmm. um, I'm excited about hearing many different voices. Uh, you mentioned Katori and mentioned Dominique and Mariso and, and you know, they, and, and there are others that are coming up that yeah. are bubbling to the surface to hear these very Even unique... looking up and down the 40s here in New York, it mm. is looking very different and oh, sounding really? very different. I mean, there, there's more than one black play on Broadway right yeah. now. Yeah, oh, that's right. That's right. There's <laughs> slave play. They got us. That's and right. I don't want to point to it that way, but I yeah. mean, they're, they're... But we have to. I mean, I mean, I mean, KB, the fact that a play like this, a Pulitzer Prize winning play, ran two years in New York, highly successful, turned into a film, Academy Award nominations. Why does it take 35 years mm -hmm. to come to Broadway? 35 years. I don't get that, but and then you have slave play that's here, and you know some for whatever reason, you know every every show's got a different and production team or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this has so many different production teams attached to it. But it's just every every project has a different journey. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's I'm I'm honored that we're I'm glad that we're here. I'm honored to be a part of this production. Um, but there needs to be more. There needs to be much more. There needs to be much more. But as long as these writers are writing and there are producers producing the work and audiences are showing up, that's the other thing. And, and audiences we'll see more. are buying tickets. Yeah. I, I mean, Ain't Too Proud just broke records for the yeah. third week in a row. That's right. You know, and Tina's doing much better than anyone projected. I mean, it's this whole, this adage that, you know, well, black audiences don't buy tickets. Oh, that's, it's, that's... Well, it, it's statistically not true. That's right. And that's there right. are too many examples now that we can point to. And so as long as those audiences keep coming. Yeah, like like every demographic, if you create, if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. If you create something that that audience is interested in, they'll show up. And if you make great work. I mean, if you are yeah. creating great art, doesn't matter if an audience knows that they want to see it in advance. Like that word does still get out. Yeah, you know, word that's of right. mouth is still a thing, and um, I, and I say it as a compliment to you, but it it is happening with Soldiers Play. Yeah, there are a lot of people who eh, knew that that was a movie, right? And blah blah blah. But um, you know, even white friends of mine in the city that are like up in Queens today were like, you know, I've been hearing about that. Oh yeah, right. And they're not theater people. Oh, that's great. You know, that's and great. so. I, it's got a nice buzz about it. It's, it's, yeah, pretty, it's pretty exciting. Some of that is credit to the work itself. Yeah. You guys hopefully. really, you guys really <laughs> do have something special here. Um, and I'm not saying that because you're sitting in front of me. I mean, it, there really is something truly remarkable about this production of this play. Mm. And I, I hope tons of people get to see it. Thank you. That means so much coming from you. I mean, the, the conversation we had in the dressing room the other night, because I've never seen another production of it. Mm. Part of familiarizing myself with the play was I went on YouTube and I first saw it, and there are a number of different like yeah. community uh, um, uh, all levels of well, yeah, but <laughs> it's always it's just it, yeah, <laughs> but all of it's valuable to see what 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 have people thought, what was their approach to whatever it is. Um, so I found that interesting, but to hear your perspective on just different different um, approaches and and, and uh, ways to mount the show and tell the story, it's a trick. It's a tr because of its construct. With the flashbacks and the time shifts, um, it's a tricky, it's a tricky play, and and in the wrong hands. I mean, Kenny Leon, I think, did a masterful job. I really do, but in he the wrong hands, this play beautifully. Oh my God! In the wrong hands, it could be a hot mess. It could be flat. Mm -hmm. No, it, it could be it could be played as a whodunit mm -hmm. for that purely a whodunit for that value and that value on its own. Yeah. And I I will say, um, I mean, I have so much respect for Kenny Leon. <laughs> it's oh, not dude. even funny. I mean, he's uh, just does great work and, and brings 
a cultural specificity to mm -hmm. work that is not in your face. But what I said the other night, like it's an, an immediate identifying, you know exactly where you are, you know exactly what the world of this play is. And, yeah. and he is just an expert at bringing yeah. that to, to life. And um, but this, this whole piece from top to bottom is, very fully realized, and that doesn't mm. always happen. So fully realized, yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. Thank mm -hmm. you. That's what's been so important from the beginning. I, I mentioned this before, just how, you know, if you if in the rehearsal process, if any of us, if you felt like we were acting, or playing at mm -hmm. a character, or playing at a scene, we would stop. And say, no, let's get to the truth of it. And I think that's now what you see on this stage. I mean, these guys. I'm so impressed with the, this ensemble. I'm so honored to take the stage mm -hmm. with this ensemble every mm -hmm. night because. You know, from the time, if you know the story, when I'm... Uh, and it's truly an ensemble, too. Oh, completely. Which, well, with you and David Allen Greer, it's possible that it wouldn't be. Like, it's mm. it's very possible that it could be like, here are the two stars of our show, and these three people are the leads, and everyone yeah. else is supporting, and this is an ensemble through and through. Oh, yeah, uh, the way it's constructed, it's from the beginning, yeah. Which which I prefer, you know. I mean, which anything, even, even star vehicles, there are 200 people who make who's going to make it run in the first place. So it's always an ensemble. Yeah. But I just always, I always approach the work like that. It's, it's, it's the team that's going to make it work. But, but um, you know, just to even for Davenport to get to that emotional place where this production takes it, mm -hmm. it's all predicated on from CJ in prison, mm -hmm. you know, where he is just crushed emotionally. Yeah. And then Cobb's response to that, where he's crushed. And then it's just one after the other. Yeah. Um, and just watching these actors... Because I say that because I'm experiencing it with them, but I'm also as them, but I'm watching And you are really the watching them as the yeah. story unfolds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Well, I will um, end with just one last question that I do ask everyone. Um, if there is a single black play that you think belongs in a black canon, um, what would it be? A black play that's not in the black canon? Well, there isn't yet a official black canon because we have a very hard time defining mm. what makes a black play a black play. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, it, it's rich. <laughs> Listen, That's going to be a whole other episode. I'm a little biased, but I will tell you one of my favorite plays that I want to bring to Broadway is Paradise Blue. From your lips to the internet's ears. Yeah, man. Thank you for your time. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And actually just you know, very heartfelt um, thanks for, for making this work out. And, um, and thanks for sharing your time and your talent. That, my friends, was Blair Underwood running off to his flight call for a soldier's play on Broadway. You can find a link to the great article about Blair and his father, Papa Frank Underwood, and a few reviews about his performance in Blue at blacktheaterhistory.com. This is the Black Theater History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our podcast is produced by Equity Justice Productions and edited by SB Studios. Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin which can be purchased wherever you like to support artists' careers by actually paying for their work. If you like the work we're doing here and want to support the podcast with a fiscal contribution, or for more information about episode commissions and sponsorships, reach out to us at blacktheaterhistory.com. Thank you to all of you, our listeners. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Black Theater History Podcast on iTunes and to leave us a review there. Your feedback will help us get the podcast in front of other folks who will enjoy it. You can find us on Facebook at Black Theater History Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Black Theater Pod. They're both theater with an R-E. We're all in this together, friends, and we've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>